what religion calls morality is really about sustainability peace is sustainable war is not love is sustainable hate is not so you can go down the list and you see that everything that we consider to be moral is really sustainable because to me sustainability means that you can continue that action for the rest of creation for all eternity if you want to that is sustainable right if it's going to stop at some point then it's not sustainable it is going to stop so uh all the violence that we have put into our systems are going to have to change that's passionate environmentalist founder and executive director of climate healers silash rao this week's guest on episode 89 of the unplug podcast Hello and welcome to another awesome week, awesome week of the Unplug podcast, where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by co-creating a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and interconnected world. You are plugged in, isn't that ironic? The Unplug podcast and you're plugged in. That just sounds weird, but hey, you know, you got to get the unplugged message out somehow. And since we're such a plugged in culture, then you might as well plug into something that's actually going to feed your brain and just resurrect your soul. So with that, you have plugged into the audio space where you will hear powerful conversations with the courageous truth seekers and free thinkers of today's rapidly changing world. And my name is Deb Ozarko, warrior of truth, status quo crusher, and passionate lover of life here to welcome you to your almost weekly dose of authentic expression, truth, critical thought, provoking words, and open-hearted inspiration from my paradigm-busting headquarters in beautiful coastal British Columbia, Canada. Now, last week, I excitedly announced that my long-awaited book, Unplug, 26 People Share How They Recharge and Reconnect to Passion, Presence, and Purpose was finally ready. Well, since last week, I've been working my butt off to get it up and online for sale. And I am absolutely thrilled to say that after two and a half years of really, 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 really ass-kicking hard work and heartfelt passion, it's finally ready to share with you all. So I am really pleased to officially announce in episode 89, I am officially proud to announce that the Kindle slash digital slash e-reader version of Unplug is now live for sale on Amazon, on iBooks, and also on Kobo. And the print version is going to be available on January 18th to coincide with the release of the Kindle book. So, woohoo! <laughs> Celebrate this with me. This is a huge milestone and I am honored to be able to share my totally exposed heart with you and the totally exposed hearts of so many others. And it really is a very powerful and empowering book that is going to change lives and change this world in the best way possible. So, so get it, get it and share it and spread the word. And, and yeah, this is, it's, what can I say? I'm really proud of it. 
I'm feeling kind of vulnerable too. I'm admitting that it's, it's weird, you know, like here I have my voice out in the world through iTunes with this podcast, but this is, this feels even bigger now. Like now I've got a book out there too. So I'm feeling a little vulnerable and it's been amazing that the stuff that's been coming up for me, the, you know, the, the little itty bitty voice that's so negative and nattery, you know, all the nonsense that keeps us small. Well, I'd love to be able to say that I've kicked that voice out of my head, but she still lives there. And she's quiet for the most part, but just the last few days, while, you know, the book release has been looming, uh, she's she's had a few things to say. Needless to say, she's in the sidelines now. So the book is there. Get it. It's there for you. I am sharing this with you now. It's no longer just a, a, a project that is holed up in my little office in coastal British Columbia. Now it is live for the world to see. And I'm hoping that it's going to heal many, many lives and in the process, heal the world. And um, I'm going to be linking to all of the pre-sale websites in the show notes on my website for this podcast. And that's going to be debozarco.com backslash 89. I'm also going to be setting up a special page for the book once I get around to designing that. So <laughs> I've just prompted myself. I'm going to be doing that, I guess, after this podcast is done. Uh, so when you get to Amazon or Kobo or iBooks, all you have to do is search for my name, Debo Zarko, and voila, there it is. I think you can also search for Unplug. I'm not really sure. I'm sure there's other books out there. It's probably easier to search for my name because, you know, hey, my name is pretty unique. And I'm going to be also offering the book for sale on my website in the new year with multiple digital formats. So it's going to be in a package and that's, you know, I can't offer that with online retailers. You can only offer one certain format, but with a digital package, I can offer a variety of formats, including the, uh, the print PDF version of it, which, Hey, you won't be able to get on these, uh, on these digital sites. So stay tuned for that and you can get a whole package. So it's very, very exciting times for me. And I'm grateful in advance for all of your support for the podcast throughout this entire journey. And now with the release of this first of many books to come. So thank you. And now onto this week's show. And to coincide with the release of this book, I'm releasing a very, very special podcast this week. And this is a powerful conversation that I had a few weeks ago with a man who is guaranteed to leave you feeling empowered and very hopeful for a better future and for a better world. Silesh Rao is the founder and executive director of the environmental organization Climate Healers, which is an organization dedicated to healing the earth through simplicity and compassion. And as stated on the Climate Healers website, a truly compassionate lifestyle leads to conscious simplicity and restores equity in human societies. And Climate Healer's core guiding principle states that compassion for all creation is infinitely sustainable. In other words, according to Climate Healer's and also according to my personal beliefs, a global adoption of a simple vegan lifestyle exemplifies compassion for all creation in all our actions. Now, using the, the metaphor of the caterpillar and the butterfly, 
In this week's show, Silesh speaks really, really eloquently to, uh, to our collective transformation as a species. Now, I'm not going to give too much away because he goes into this in great detail, along with so many other awesome topics. But uh, let's just say that the crazy stuff that, the, that we're currently witnessing in the world these days is a really, really loud sign of change. Silesh is an electrical engineer by training with a background in technology. And he's actually one of the people who is responsible for the early development of the internet, which I know I can speak for myself. Many of us can't even imagine living without it anymore. Silesh is also a deeply compassionate man with a powerful, powerful, infectious passion for the earth and also for healing the earth through love. Silesh has dedicated his life to making the world a better place. And I can honestly say after this week's conversation that he does it with absolutely infectious joy. And personally, I can honestly not think of a better podcast conversation to share to coincide with my epic book release. I'm really, really excited to share this conversation with you as I'm really, really excited to share my book with you. So enjoy my heartfelt and inspiring conversation this week with the amazing Silesh Rao. I'm really grateful to have you on this show, Silesh. It's when I heard your conversation with Rich Roll, I was so moved. And I felt so empowered and so excited that I immediately reached out to you. The, the words that you shared, the two of you together, touched me on a really, really deep level. And I'm really excited that it, because of Rich, I have my own podcast now. And, um, you know, and I'm able to share your message to an even bigger audience because it's so pertinent. It's so important. And it's so necessary in today's world. So I just want to give you a big, very warm welcome to start. Thank you very much. Yeah. The way I really like to start these shows is I really like to get to the essence of, of people so that listeners have an idea of who you are, who you are, what your journey was, and how you got from where you were to where you are today. And you know, I've heard your story and I, I know that your your journey to being the passionate environmental advocate that you are right now was, you know, was nonlinear as most of our journeys are. But I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit about that, how you were an integral player in the tech world and how you went from there to being um, an outspoken environmental advocate with with your organization, Climate Healers now. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's. It was not a completely unplanned journey, right? It's one of those things, as you said, it's a nonlinear event that happens. Um, I, I was an engineer. I'm an electrical engineer. And uh, I was trained by one of the best systems engineers on the planet, Professor Thomas Kailath, you know? So he taught us, actually, how to take um, results from one field and apply it in another field. That was the gist of his message that he taught us. And uh, I was using that in uh, the internet arena. I was working on the hardware infrastructure for the internet in the 90s, 
you know, and it was relatively successful. I mean, at that point, we had no idea that the internet was going to take off. <laughs> we and, ta and take over our lives. <laughs> right, yeah. We were just playing, you know. And in 1995, actually, there was an article in Newsweek magazine saying that, uh, asking if the internet is going to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny now when you think about it. Right, yes. So, uh, I remember in 1996, uh, I was working on 100 megabit Ethernet, which is um, which is sending data over wires at 100 megabits per second. Okay, so it's a lot of data, and at that time we thought, my God, we will never use this much bandwidth, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and there was a uh, there was an effort going on in the IEEE, which is the Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers, at standardizing these these protocols. How do you how do you transmit on a copper cable over a hundred meters at hundred megabits per second? And uh, so I was working on a uh, hundred megabit standard called hundred base T two. There was another one called hundred base TX that was already in the market, and Cisco was. Cisco was a small company at that time, you know? It was less than a billion dollars in market valuation in 1995. And so one of the engineers from Cisco approached me and asked, you know, this 100-base DX standard that we are deploying has problems. So can you take a look at that and tell us what we need to do differently? Okay. At the same time, another gentleman who was my colleague in the, in the IEEE, he came to me and he said, can you take a look at this cable and see if you can do a gigabit on it? Okay, so there were two questions that came to me simultaneously. And so I started looking at that and uh, I realized that, you know, the 100 base TX standard was fundamentally flawed. There were some issues with it, but you can address it by actually sending a gigabit over that link. And the link was robust enough that you can send a gigabit. So it was all, you know, it was, it was like a stepping stone to getting the internet off and running, right? So uh, we, and I, so I went and made that presentation at the next meeting. I said, you know, the standard is flawed, but you can do a gigabit on this very easily. And people laughed at me. They <laughs> said, so you're out of your mind, you know? <laughs> this is... You're having trouble getting 100 megabit to work, and you're talking about doing 10 times faster on the same cable. So, but they, but they were, but they were kind enough to let me play. They said, "Okay, you can have your own study group, and you can go and study it, and you can go evangelize it to people, <laughs> and, and see if it takes off. I mean, if it works, it works. It's great, right?" So that's how the internet was really built, you know, with people playing. <laughs> and, and by the end of that year, in 1996, people realized that it was serious, that gigabit can be done on this. And now there were five or six, you know, different proposals on how to do a gigabit on this cable. And our company got acquired. And was this Cisco? No, it wasn't Cisco. Our company got acquired by a company called Level One Communications. So, okay. I mean, we had one little small company, you know, but that got acquired by Level One Communications for the gigabit technology that we had developed, okay? And within three years, level one got acquired by Intel for the gigabit technology that was developed. <laughs> wow, you just kept getting bigger and bigger. 
Right, yeah. So by 1999, I was working for Intel on gigabit Ethernet. And uh, by 2003, we had, we had it on the motherboard. And so there were 150 million units that were sold that year, you know. And the internet was a phenomenon. I mean, it, was, it had taken off. I mean, everybody was jumping in. And Cisco had become a $400 billion company. Intel was a $400 billion company. There was a huge bubble going on at that time, right? And the internet took off. And by 2005, so I remember this is exactly 10 years after I'd heard whether the internet is going to go anywhere. By 2005, I overheard someone saying, I don't know how I can live without the internet. <laughs> wow. So it was, it's a completely nonlinear transformation that the internet brought about, right? And it, it happened quickly because when you're talking, when, you're, when you were talking about 1996, instantly I got an audio sound in my head and it was that dial-up sound. You know, that, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that dial-up sound and where we've come so quickly, right? where we are right now. Yeah, in fact, we were working on the internet, but uh, uh, we used to have a modem that would dial up to our, <laughs> our ISP, right? <laughs> Twice a day to collect our emails. <laughs> so that's how we were doing it. Uh, we had our own local area network, of course, inside the company. But, you know, but th th those were the days, right? Uh -huh. So it was a very nonlinear transformation that happened. And in 2005, I had another event just like that. So 2005, I was working on 10 gigabit Ethernet. I had already quit Intel. And I had started my own company to do 10 gigabit Ethernet. You know, same thing 10 times faster. <laughs> and this time, it was no longer a collegial body at the, uh, at the standards meetings. There was a lot of money involved. Mm. So there were there was infighting, there was I mean there was all kinds of things going on in the and I was disillusioned with the whole process by now, right? And I came home one day and I was uh, and I turned on Link TV, which was which is the public access channel on satellite. And and there was Al Gore talking about climate change. And I was stunned by what he was, what he was talking about, what he, what he was saying, because I had no idea that this was so bad. The environmental situation was so bad. And, you know, I, to me, the environmental situation is like a huge systems problem. It's a system that's gone awry. You know, the human system looks like it is. It's completely out of whack with nature, right? That's what he was talking about. And I was shocked. And I told my wife, if half of what he's saying is true, what in the heck are we doing here? You know, working on 10 gigabit Ethernet, 10 times faster. Does it really matter? And uh, so she agreed with me and she said, okay, you know, go study it. If you think it's, it's something that you need to do, go ahead and do that. So I studied the problem and within three months, I realized that Al Gore is an optimist, that, <laughs> that he's, he's only talking about the tip of the iceberg, what he's seeing, right? There's a whole another part of it below the ocean that you don't see, that he doesn't talk about. So with your, this was with your own research. You discovered that he really was only literally talking about the tip of the iceberg. Right, yeah. Um, so I, I like to use the analogy of, you know, the, uh, of someone having a fever, right, who goes to the doctor and he says, I've had this, I've had this persistent fever. You know, they're running a temperature of 100 degrees Fahrenheit every day for the past two weeks. 
what should I do? And the doctor examines the patient and he says, actually, sir, you have cancer. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, your cancer is going to get worse. So your, so, so your cancer is growing and so your fever is going to get worse, right? So that's what he's saying. Your fever is going to get worse. And, and the best I can do is to limit your fever to 102 degrees. Okay? But in the worst case, it's going to go to 104, 105, and you're probably going to die. Okay? But we don't want that. We don't want your fever to go to 105, 106. We want it to be 102 or less. <laughs> okay? So this is Al Gore's story. And then the patient basically says, wait a minute, you just said I have cancer. Why are you talking about the fever now? <laughs> <laughs> Let's address the cancer first, right? Mm. And, and the response you get from everyone who is talking about this is that don't worry about the cancer. The cancer will grow bigger and bigger. That's okay. <laughs> we have to worry about the fever. <laughs> it's just when you use that metaphor, it just sounds so ludicrous. Right. It is, right? <laughs> that's really what's going on. That's the conversation that's going on. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this and I'm saying, don't they know? I mean, if they know, are they pretending not to know? I mean, what is going on here, right? This is the same thing that happens in the movie Cowspiracy, right? Mm -hmm. Where Kip Anderson is going around talking to all these environmental organizations about why are they not talking about animal agriculture? So that's a symptom of, the, of someone hiding the cancer. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk about the cancer because that addresses, that actually impacts their entire lifestyle. Right? So that's why they don't, I mean, they're so used to this. They are so used to the cancer growing and growing and growing. And, and they're, they're looking at the fever as the outward symptom of the cancer and saying, if we can put, get that symptom under control, right, we don't have to worry about what's going on underneath. Mm. You see, I mean, it is, you know, it's not as if uh, the scientists don't know. We know, right? Scientists know. In fact, the, at the UN, um, after uh, the 1992, Kyoto, uh, 1992 Rio Convention, was it 92 or 91? Anyway, the, after the Rio Convention, there were three UN bodies that were formed. One was the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the climate change meeting that happens every year and that we all, you know, pay a lot of attention to that meeting, right? And so COP21 is going to happen in Paris in December and a lot of people are going for that. But there were two other conventions that were formed. The Convention on Biological Diversity and there was a convention to combat desertification. Okay. The Convention on Biological Diversity is a bunch of ecologists. I mean, a lot of scientists to get together and work on this. And they came up with something that they said, by 2010, we are going to halt biodiversity loss. And all the countries signed up to it. Okay? And pretty soon they realized that they cannot do this. As the economy grows, biodiversity is going to be lost. So they... So they knew they couldn't meet their commitments. They just ignored it. So basically, they had another meeting where they said, okay, by 2020, <laughs> we 
we're going to halt biodiversity loss. <laughs> and so they're thinking in a very linear way. Right. You know, I mean, they're stuck, right? They're stuck in this current paradigm. And we actually tell them, hey, if, you, if the economy doesn't grow, we're going to fire you. <laughs> right, what do you think? So they have no choice but to continue this. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, the economy is like a Ponzi scheme, right? That we have been, mm. that we have created, right? It's a Ponzi scheme, pretty much. Because, and the Ponzi scheme is depending on nature to keep handing them, handing us stuff so that we can keep growing our economy. But nature is fine. I mean, there's a finite amount of stuff there and, and life is dying in front of our eyes. Okay. And yet we have no option but to continue the Ponzi scheme. So all of our leaders are like Bernie Madoff, but this is an open Ponzi scheme. I and mean, we all know it's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> but we live in a collective state of denial. Right. I mean, we, we, it, it's, so this is why I call this the caterpillar stage. Right in the metaphor I use, this is a caterpillar stage, and and caterpillar has to be there, right, in order for the butterfly to come out. Mm -hmm. So we're at the ed end of the caterpillar stage, and the caterpillar is wondering, my God, do I have to change or can I continue like this? <laughs> and there are some cells in the caterpillar that are saying, continue, we'll continue, you know, we can keep growing even more. And there are other cells saying, no, it's time to change. Right. So, but the thing about the caterpillar is that the caterpillar has no choice but to become a butterfly. No matter what those cells that are saying, let's continue, no matter what they do, the caterpillar is going to change. So that's the inevitability of, of the transformation that I'm talking about. It is going to happen. And, and when you use the caterpillar butterfly metaphor, um, it'd be really interesting if you could go a little bit deeper in that because the, the caterpillar is a voracious consumer. Right. Which <laughs> is, is um, it's a really powerful metaphor for what humanity has become, voracious consumers. Right. But how that evolution into the butterfly actually happens. Right. But the, but the caterpillar is a voracious consumer, but, but, but the caterpillar also is an essential part of nature. The caterpillar had to be a voracious consumer because the caterpillar was serving a purpose hmm. in the forest, right? Eating excess biomass that's fallen on the ground or, and becoming food for other animals. I mean, caterpillar serves a purpose, right? And then when the caterpillar stops and becomes a butterfly... In that transformation is also an inevitable transformation. That is going to happen. That will happen. The caterpillar has no choice. Caterpillar cannot say, you know, I prefer being a caterpillar for the rest of my life. Right? So we are exactly in the same state. You know, human beings have been around for 200,000 years. Okay? In our current form. In our current form. And... Nature does not make mistakes like that. <laughs> a 200,000-year-long mistake. Yes, we are, <laughs> we are long overdue for a software upgrade. <laughs> right. And that's happening, okay? As we speak, it's happening. So, uh, but, the, but the people at the top, I mean, like, the, like President Obama, I mean, President Obama, you know, you, you hear him and you hear uh, 
for instance, he gave an interview uh, when he was visiting Alaska. I think it was last year. And you hear the compassion, you know, in the man. The, the man is, is, he is conflicted because on the one hand, he has to continue the current system. He's the head of the current system, right? On the other hand, he has two daughters. And he knows that this cannot continue for too long. I mean, it's going to, but he's afraid of the collapse, right? People are afraid of this collapse. People are always afraid of losing what they have. Because it's unfamiliar. I mean, we're, and, right. and I think that what you're saying is that we're, we're reaching a critical point where radical transformation has to happen. And all of these old patriarchal, destructive, antiquated right. systems need to collapse in order for the butterfly to emerge. Right. It needs to transform, right? So we need to make the transformation familiar. See, that's that's mm, what I that's do in, powerful. Right. That's what I'm that's what we are trying to do in climate healers. We are saying, okay, we are going to transform, okay? It's inevitable we have to we are going to transform. Now, we want to now show you what the transformed state looks like. And you will then discover that you want to be there, not where you are today. Mm. So that will create the acceleration in the transformation. Right? Because you need to show, it's, 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 it's not about going back to a cave and living in a cave, okay? I mean, that's what everybody thinks it's going to become. No, it's not. It's, it's actually going to be a beautiful transformation because you're going to become more of a community. So, you know, I, the reason I am so hopeful that this is happening and this is going to happen, it's inevitable it's going to happen, is because this transformation depends on the women of the world. Okay, the trans it's a transformation in how we consume, what we eat. I mean, what we um, what we spend our resources on, what we spend our time on. Okay, and right now, in the developed world, where most of the consumption is happening, where the caterpillar is the strongest. Okay, eighty percent of purchasing decisions are made by women. So the women of the developed world have the power to change. They have the power today. <laughs> it's not that they have to go acquire power. They have the power today to change and to transform. The Dalai Lama said something similar too, didn't he? About how the, the transformation that this world needs will, I think he said something about that. It will be facilitated or inspired by Western women. But I, I don't think he necessarily... The way I read into it is not not Western women, but the Western Westernized mindset, and I think that that plays into it supports what you're saying right there about the purchasing decisions and and lesser consumption. Right. I mean, it is consumption of a different kind, right? I mean, in meaning we are, we all have to consume to live. Mm -hmm. Okay. But what do we consume, and what do we give back? What do we uh, what do we do with our time? Right when we get to a lesser consumption state, what do we do with our extra time? We're going to have a lot of extra time. So what do we do with that? Well, we are going to give back to nature. Mm. That's what the butterfly does. Right? The butterfly basically consumes too, right? The butterfly, but the butterfly is consuming nectar from flowers. So it's a very light consumer. And pollinating in the process. Right, and pollinating the flower in the process, right? So, and you're regenerating life in the process. So that's how 
the butterfly becomes a net asset. It's a net asset to nature. So we are going to become a net asset to nature by doing exactly that. I mean, we know exactly where we need to get to. I mean, scientists have been working on this. They have been showing, okay, you need to return half of the land of the planet back to nature, mm -hmm. back to wildlife. So we have to do rewilding of the planet, okay? And they even know that the, that the half that we return back has to be contiguous from north to south so that animals are going to have to migrate when, uh, you know, when climate changes happen, right? So this is why... You know, even though UNCBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity, and the Convention to Combat Desertification, those two are not getting any press. You don't hear about that in the newspapers. But those are the more important conventions than the Climate Change Convention. We are all worried about climate change because it's a fever and we can feel it. Right? Whereas the CBD and CCD, I mean, those two things are about things that we don't see directly in the Western world. See, it's what affects the rich that gets the attention of the mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. Right? Whereas the poor people know. They know. And if you go talk to people in India, uh, in the villages, they know that the climate change is happening. They know that wildlife is dying because they see that in front of their eyes. They know that the desert is increasing because they see that in front of their eyes. And you go talk to them about these things, they say, why are you telling us this? We know it's happening. So tell us what we can do to help you. Right? That's the response we get. How, how can we help you and at the same time help, ours, help us? You know, Because they are in the front lines of this. And I, I heard you tell a, a really powerful story about how Gandhi transformed the situation in India. And I mean, when we look at when we look at the the macro. So if we look at the macro, if we look at all of the systems that are out there, it looks like we're going to hell in a handbasket, and we're going there quickly because of the normalization of the abnormal, the continual normalization of the normal. So the normalization of the fever, essentially. Right. And what I'm noticing, speaking with people like yourself and, you know, even people locally here, the there's a new nervous system that's being built at a grassroots level. People mm -hmm. like the, like who, you know, the people that you were talking about just now, how they see the problems and people on an individual grassroots level are making significant change. And I see that as a new nervous system, a new foundation, a new root system that's being built to create a new foundation for the birth of the butterfly. Right. And when you told the story about Gandhi, I felt like that really, that really played into, um, or it really supported the, the butterfly metaphor in a real world kind of way. And I'm wondering, actually, if you could share that story about how he changed changed things with the, the textile industry in that grassroots way, I think that's really powerful way to inspire listeners to, to really just see how easy it is right. on, as individuals, how much power we all have. Yeah, so the, um, Gandhi's story actually started in 1909. Even though we, we only, in the history books, they only talk about 1914 onwards or 1918 onwards. Um, in 1909, he was on a ship coming from uh, 
England to South Africa because he was a lawyer. He was a lawyer in South Africa and he was uh, actually deeply involved in the apartheid movement, anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. So uh, on the ship, the, he had a fellow traveler who, had asked, who was asking him questions and so he answered. And uh, over time, the, I mean, the, the traveler actually took down notes, what, what Gandhi was saying, and the notes, he compiled it into a book called Hind Swaraj. Okay? And he published that book in Gujarati. It was a local language in, in India, Gujarati. And, uh, but the British government, uh, which was ruling India at that time, basically banned the book. They banned the book because the book was, uh, was showing why Indians, Indian culture, the Indian civilization, uh, actually had it right. Our ancestors had it right as to how do you live in harmony with nature. And he said the Western influence that has come in through the British colonization was actually contrary to that. And therefore, we need to just ignore it and go back to what we were doing before. So in a way, he was trying to empower the Indians. So Gandhi basically told Indians, you were right all along. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Do what you were doing. <laughs> so the British government banned the book. And once the British government banned the book, it became an instant bestseller in India. <laughs> it got translated into every language and everybody was reading it. And so that was the basis for Gandhi's reputation in India. So when he landed in India in 1915, January, he, he came on a boat. And there is a picture of him, and you can see him wearing these suits. He, he had a suit on with a tie. He was a lawyer, right? So he stepped off the ship, and people took a picture of him. So that picture is still there, and you can <laughs> download that, it. It's unrecognizable. When, right. <laughs> when I think of Gandhi, I think of the loincloth, not the right. suit. <laughs> right. So the transformation that happened to Gandhi was that, you know, that loincloth transformation that happened. You know, so he spent about three years traveling India, talking to the villagers, trying to understand what he should be doing. And he got a, he got a tremendous reception in India because he was already popular because of the book. Right? So people listened to him. And after studying the problem in 1918, he started what is known as the Khadi movement in India. And the movement was, was, to, was to do something very simple, you know. He asked every Indian to do that one simple thing. Change your clothes. So change your clothes from the British clothes you have been forced to wear, I mean, you've been wearing all along, that you think is normal now, to Khadi clothes made by Indians in India. Okay? It's basically a localization movement. And it's also about gaining back the power. Because he realized that the textile industry was the largest industry in England at that time. And the British government totally depended upon Indians buying the goods that they made in Manchester. India was the largest market for the textile industry. So he was empowering the consumers. He told the consumers, you have the power to change the whole system. If you just go change your clothes, watch what happens. And within a dozen years, he had bankrupted all the textile mills in Manchester. <laughs> and the British government was on its knees 
begging to negotiate with him. Until then, the British government ignored him. You know, they thought he was some nut who's running around changing clothes. <laughs> 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 then they realized that he was a, this is a serious man. I mean, he's making some serious changes. And so, so they came to negotiate with them. There was a roundtable conference in India, and there was another roundtable conference in uh, London, where Gandhi went in his loincloth, right? And Winston Churchill made that famous statement, you know, about this half-naked fakir <laughs> who is going to come and talk to His Majesty the King. <laughs> and and when he landed in London, actually in, in England, that's when the, the uh, reporters asked him, what do you think about Western civilization, Mr. Gandhi? And he said, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> so... <laughs> So all those things happened because of that Kadi movement. So what I'm saying is that, you know, today we are facing exactly the same situation, you know, 100 years later. Facing exactly the same situation. And this time it's about empowering all the consumers of the world, especially the women mm. who are making the purchasing decisions, right? You even have the power. You have the power. You have the power to change the entire system. And change doesn't happen from within the box that created the problems in the first place. It comes from a whole other way of thinking. Right. And, and this time it's not about changing our clothes, but it's about changing what we eat. Mm. It's the food. Okay. By changing what we eat, just like Gandhi said, you know, go local, make your own clothes, make your own khadi, right? So you go so, and, and also reduce Basically, he was saying, forget about all these bowler hats and just wear a loincloth, simple cloth, right? And, and that did it. So here, it's the same thing. It's stop getting animal foods from, from all over the place. Go to eating simple, organic, plant-based foods. Okay? And as local as possible. Mm -hmm. Again, it's the localization movement, just like Gandhi did the localization of the, uh, the clothing of textiles. The same, localization of your food and reducing your footprint on the food. So go plant-based. And we can do this today, okay? And if you look at what Gandhi was trying to do in the 1930s, you know, he also tried to go vegan, by the way. He tried to go vegan, but he couldn't do it. He said, I had to go and rely on goat's milk. Whenever I felt sick, my doctor would tell me, go drink some milk because you need the nutrients there. And, and, you know, I've been thinking about that. So why couldn't Gandhi do it? And we are able to do this. Millions of people are now going vegan, right? And we are healthy. So what changed? And what changed is that we have technology now to actually grow almost anything anywhere. Whereas Gandhi was depending on his local foods, whatever was being grown locally, and it had to be seasonal and local. And, you know, whatever fruits and vegetables they were growing locally, he probably couldn't get all the nutrients he needed. He needed to eat the grass, which he, of course, he couldn't. He'd rather let the cow or the goat eat the grass <laughs> and then take the milk from the cow, right? That's what he was doing. Basically extracting other minerals and nutrients that he couldn't have extracted through just the fruits and vegetables he was, he was used to, he was, he was getting locally. So what I'm saying is that today we can actually grow a lot more I mean, we can actually grow almost anything anywhere. And we have access to foods from almost everywhere, right? 
So we, we have the capacity to go vegan today. And that is a very powerful thing we can do because it changes the whole game. It's about empowering, it's about uh, releasing the animals, you know, letting them live their own lives. So it's about compassion. It's really the true impl in, in implementation of ahimsa. And can you explain from your perspective what ahimsa is? This is a word that I bring into this podcast on a regular basis. It's, it's a word that means so much to me, and it's, it's basically the premise of my own life. And anytime anybody brings that up, I get really excited. And, <laughs> and I, I remember hearing that you, uh, you mentioned on Rich's show that you grew up with the Ahimsa tradition. So who better to talk about Ahimsa than you? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just channeling what my ancestors taught me, right? So, <laughs> That's perfect. Right. So, and Ahimsa is, the root word is Himsa. Okay? Himsa is being actually deliberately cruel to other life. So people would say, no, don't do Himsa. Don't do Himsa, meaning, you know, you are deliberately hurting something. Ahimsa is the negation of that. It is never to deliberately hurt an innocent being unnecessarily. So uh, it's a very ancient concept. It actually is in the Rigveda, the original of the first of the first book of Hinduism. Uh, that's where the word first appears. And then it's been, it's appeared almost everywhere. And after that, uh, it's, it's the basis of Jainism. Okay. Um, it is, uh, the, uh, it's the first part of five parts of the first step of eight steps of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. So it's like, you have to practice Ahimsa before you even start doing yoga. Right? Otherwise, Patanjali says your yoga is useless. I mean, it's not going to connect you properly unless you do these parts. So the first part is Ahimsa. And I grew up in that tradition in the sense that, you know, my parents, my grandparents, they were all trying to practice it. Yeah? They would say, don't hurt any being, don't hurt any, uh, even an ant. You know, don't try to step on it. I mean, don't hurt um, any creature that's near you. And even milking the cow was supposed to be done in an ahimsa way, right? Meaning you let the calf drink, and once the calf is finished, then you get the excess for human consumption. And that's what our grand, my grandparents were doing. Yeah? And, and of course, they, had, they were using the cow to plow the field. Okay. And um, the, usually the males go and plow the field. And the females are sitting you know, and, and raising their calves and, and providing milk for the family. So one day, uh, so my parents, you know, we lived in, uh, in a city called Chennai. And my grandparents lived in Mangalore, which is on the other coast. So every summer, my parents would, uh, would send all the kids to the grandparents for three months. So they get a break. <laughs> and the grandparents... And nice long all, break. It's a long break. And we all get to have fun in the village. Okay. In the forest. 
and uh, we all get to meet our cousins. So it was a great way. Of, uh, I mean, we enjoyed it too, right? So it was great for both of us. So my parents used to do that every every year. And one year, you know, we had gone there, and I was maybe around seven or eight years old at that time. And I overheard my grandmother telling my grandfather that this particular calf was drinking too much. He was not leaving enough milk for the children. So what do I do? Then my grandfather told my grandmother, you know, pull him away after 10 minutes. Don't let him drink so much. I overheard that and I knew that there was something wrong going on. Okay. So that was my first exposure to, uh, you know, the slippery slope that you get into when we start consuming more and more and more, right? Need more and more and more. And now, you know, it's in a way I'm glad that my grandmother did what she did because she basically said, okay, I'll pull him away after 10 minutes. And, and then that stuck in my head that there was something wrong going on, that I'm part of it. Okay, and over time I realized that the calf is getting nothing. Over time, it got to a point where our demand for milk had increased to a, to so much that the calf was being fed now, you know, artificial things, right? Chemicals that they make up and feed to, to keep them alive, because it was all it's become all about exploitation now. Mm-hmm. Right? So, but I still persisted consuming milk, but I had that guilt inside me yeah and finally uh, after i stopped i stopped in 2008 and i stopped because i was working on climate healers at that time and i went to a village in in india and i saw the impact of livestock production on the village how uh, you know the livestock were basically overrunning the forest they're eating up everything it's growing on the ground and wherever the forest was being protected, you can see the greenery. So wherever people had put a fence to prevent livestock from going in there, the forest comes back. And I saw that fence, I mean, I saw that, that contrast, and I said, I can't do this. I have to stop, right? I stopped in 2008, December, and within a month, all my arthritic pains went away. Wow. That's amazing. Within a month. Within a month. <laughs> Just from eliminating the dairy. Just from eliminating. Because that was the only animal food I was taking, okay? I wasn't taking some, anything else. I'm a lacto-vegetarian, right? And within a month, all my arthritic pains went away. And I, got, and I was a little upset at that time because I said, my God, if I had known this, I would have asked my dad to give up his milk because <laughs> he suffered with arthritis for the last 30 years of his life. You know, and I thought I had my dad's genes, and that's why I'm getting arthritis at the age of 40, just like he did. And that, so I had been taking painkillers for the last, you know, eight years of my life when that happened. And so within a month, I lost all that pain. And, and, and then, you know, I realized it was just the milk that was doing it. <laughs> that is fascinating. Uh, and, you know, and I've heard so many stories about that, people transitioning from a you know a meat-based diet straight to veganism 
it's not just arthritic pains, it's their diabetes goes away, it's their, you know, their eyes become clear, they feel more compassionate. There are so many stories. I mean, my partner is a holistic uh, vegan health coach and helps people transition to, uh, a, you know, a vegan diet. And the the stories of transformation are incredible. But just the, you know, hearing your story from vegetarian to vegan, that right. is very powerful too. Right. It was just one thing, right? So I knew thing. that was it. <laughs> all my inflammation went away, you know? Uh, and uh, uh, all my inflammation problems went away and my arthritis went away. And, uh, and then I had this feeling of relief. I had this huge sense of guilt lift off my shoulders. And this is the guilt that I had been carrying since the age of seven or eight. Because I knew... With the little calf? With the little calf. Because that, that was my friend. That calf, I used to play with him. Right? And here, here I'm overhearing my grandmother pulling him away from his mother. <laughs> right? So I knew that I was part of complicit in this. So that guilt had been there with me for, the, for 40 years. Okay? And that fell off my shoulders. And I was so relieved that I could do this. I could do this. Because I, you know, I loved milk sweets. So I, when I said I had to quit, I wasn't sure if I can keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> but within a month, I knew I was, I, not only was I going to keep it up, I'm going to be happy keeping it up because I, I won't have my pains. I won't have my arthritic pains. And I won't have this guilt that I was carrying around all along. Okay. So I, I f became free, you know? I mean, I felt this in intense freedom so that I can now be myself. It's a deeply spiritual act too, this, this transition, this <laughs> paradigm shift that revolves entirely around what we eat. Right. I mean, it's a very spiritual act because it connects us. Mm -hmm. It connects, just like what Gandhi did was a very spiritual act. The changing of the clothes connected Indians together. Even though Indians had all these differences, India has, you know, all kinds of religious differences. It's got caste differences. I mean, people were divided and divided. And, and then this was the way that the British actually helped conquer. I mean, they, they conquered India by basically dividing Indians in, and making us fight each other, right? So, so all these divisions had happened in society. And Gandhi comes along and says, let's all wear the same clothes. And people look at each other and say, you're wearing the same clothes, right? You're wearing Khadi clothes. So you're part of the movement. So I love you being part of the movement. Right? So it connected people together across all these boundaries that they had. And the same thing is happening, I see it happening in veganism, in the sense that when people turn that and they realize that the other person is also on the same journey, we feel connected. It doesn't matter what other differences there are. You know, it could be differences in color, in skin color, whatever it is. It doesn't matter anymore. Across national boundaries, you know, we connect and it yeah connects us back to the web of life. Exactly. Yeah. So so that's why it's spiritual. You see, spirituality to me is connectedness. Mm -hmm. It's connectedness to each other and connectedness to nature. So we become part of what we always have been a part of. 
we always been a part of nature I mean, nature made us go through this caterpillar stage first right so she you know to me it is not that we got alienated from nature no that's that to me is a story that comes from position of ego that says we were so powerful we did this <laughs> no you have played all along <laughs> you know we have we were played all along we were made to do this hmm that's interesting i've never thought about it that way yeah i mean i realized that 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 story that we keep telling ourselves that we are so separated from nature we are so you know we are dominating over nature etc comes from a position of ego Mm-hmm. comes from a position of us being so powerful we are so much more powerful etc and that's a story that we tell ourselves is that story true who knows but that story is not getting us into the right position to do the right things and we're and we're starting to realize how untrue the story is just through what's playing out with the earth for instance you know here on the british columbia coast we experienced a really really serious drought all throughout western canada i know that that played out even across uh you know the western united states the western north america was in an extreme drought suffering from horrific wildfires you know i live by the ocean and i saw uh the red tide blooms that i've never seen before massive red tide blooms i've seen disintegrating starfish i've seen things this summer that i've only witnessed snippets of in the past and it's alarming so that story of us being us collectively as a species being better than is um is being proven wrong in right. a in a very loud way right now right yeah so it's basically nature asserting herself mm. you know saying you are done yes with that phase you're going to have to change you're going to change okay whether we like it or not we're going to change it's so it's happening mm-hmm. so nature is asserting herself saying all along okay all along i let you do this <laughs> it's not that we were so powerful <laughs> or nature no no she let us do this right that's a different story that's a very different story right i mean see i uh, uh, i was in a, uh, in a forest in 2009 it was just a year after i had gone vegan and um, i was down south in india uh, in a place called kurg kurg district of the western ghats of india and it's one of the top 20 biodiversity hotspots in the world okay it's a un designated uh, biodiversity hotspot in the world and i was in a sanctuary there where a couple from new jersey had come uh, maybe 20 years before that in 1990 and they had bought this coffee plantation they just let it go okay? so they just tore down all the fences and let it go and then they bought neighboring coffee plantations so they had enough land there about 200 acres i think at that point that it was a it was big enough for the animals to come and say this is our home and it was in the middle of three national forests so it's like in a valley surrounded by national forests and in the national forests the animals were being poached they were being hunted even though it's supposed to be a, a, a sanctuary because you know 
people are not paid well so all you have to do is go bribe somebody and they just turn the they look around and they look the other way when you go and poach right so there was a lot of poaching going on so these animals realized that they were safe in the sanctuary than in the national forest they started coming here and that that sanctuary became such a lush green forest that now there are uh, students from duke and harvard coming to their sanctuary to study the biodiversity of the western ghats they don't go to the national forest <laughs> so and and you can see the perfection of nature you know when you go there because there is so much life you know that's such an abundance of life you you cannot walk anywhere there without without having to hack your way through because there's so much growing so we only walk where the elephants walked because the elephants they are so big they just trample on things and they create a pathway in the forest for you <laughs> so all the animals are following the elephant paths and at night uh, you hear at you know in every spectrum of the auditory spectrum you hear some sound or the other because some animal is screaming <laughs> so there are insects buzzing around you and you know and there's such a din that you cannot even hear each other talk there's such a loud din in the forest but it's natural too and that must have been so powerful to to experience that right and not, i was not to hear the man sounds you know the the airplanes and the right the, yeah cars and machines so and it was it was so powerful to me i felt the perfection of of nature right and and i said you know what these these this couple had to come there and uh, they tore down all the fences and let the animals come in but they prevented human beings from coming inside so they would hire people to patrol the land and make sure that no poachers will come inside no other you know un, unknown person can come inside just to protect the animals right so i said how is it possible right that i was born in the same forest maybe 200 miles away from where i was standing and i don't belong why is it that pam and anil had to make sure that no human being can comes in coming here for the forest to come back the animals just happily live and the forest comes back they are just eating you know eating fruits and dropping the seeds and new trees are born right so everything the animals do helps the forest everything the elephant does helps the forest the elephant is breaking branches off the tree eating the leaves throwing the branch away and creating an opening for sunlight to stream in and nourish the underbrush right the elephant eats a whole jackfruit and then poops all the seeds along with the manure and new jackfruit trees are born so the animals created the forest the birds created the forest but human beings had to be kept out of it so i said you know there's something wrong with the story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so we need to tell a story where we do belong exactly as we are because how can nature so effortlessly let every animal be part of her web and just take one animal and say you're not part of it 
It makes me it makes me think of a quote by biologist Jonas Salk, and I just pulled this up on the computer, and he said, if all the insects were to disappear from the earth, within 50 years, all life on earth would end. If all human beings disappeared from the earth, within 50 years, all forms of life would flourish. And that's right. a pretty sad statement about right. what we've allowed ourselves to become as a species. But I think it is a wrong statement. You see, I challenge that statement on Jonas Salk. I mean, Jonas Salk, um, you know, when he made that statement, it, it is true, right? There is also a book called The World Without Us by Alan Weissman, where he, where he imagines what would happen if human beings just disappeared today. And he shows how within, you know, 50, 100 years, you know, everything will come back. Even Manhattan will dissolve, right? It will disappear and the forest will come back. So, and, and but the... The conclusion there is that we have to disappear for this to happen. And I'm saying that's not true. We actually have to become butterflies for this to happen. Mm. We are going to become butterflies for this to happen. It is going to happen. It is going to happen. And all along, we had been doing things that nature needs. You know, we, we weren't aware of it, but we were doing things that nature needs. Just like every animal is not aware that the animal is trying to bring back the forest. An animal doesn't know that. The elephant just eats and poops. <laughs> right? Happens to be perfect for the rest of life, right? So we are also doing things that we don't understand yet, but it is part of nature's plan. It is part of the, the, um, the bigger plan. If we take you step back and you look at it from a system standpoint, there is a purpose to what we did. I mean, there is a reason for what we did. There is use for everything we did for the benefit of all of life. Okay? It's about taking that and deploying it, understanding that and deploying it. And that really is the connecting story that I'm trying to tell. And I know, you know, you mentioned that you did some work with Al Gore and that you realized that essentially his his organization, his group was talking primarily about the fever, but not the cancer. And so um, I remember you mentioning that you there was a mutiny and you had you had created by that time, you had already created Earth Healers, which I want to get into a little bit more. Uh, now, what I'm noticing is that. Again, going on a macro level, I'm thinking about the blinders of denial, which essentially is the fever that many people seem to wear that gives the illusion that they're doing something better. So even though it still exists within the box that created the problems. So what I'm thinking of is like an example of this is the, the, uh, the, the cultural corruption of certain words that give off the illusion of doing something better than the norm. So um, words that really just, I feel like they're just created to appease the guilt-ridden consciousness. And it makes me think of the story that you were talking about with the calf, where you knew that something was wrong, but you didn't really, you weren't, I mean, the, the full awareness didn't really hit you until much later. So, uh, you know, so I'm thinking about words like natural, sustainable, mm -hmm. grass-fed, free-range, farm-fresh, conservation, humane. I mean, these words... They warp the mind. And I'm wondering if, uh, you know, it, it gives the illusion that people are better than status quo, but essentially, really all they're doing is they're normalizing the, the abnormal and they're maintaining the fever. And so I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. And especially, I really want to dig into the word sustainable 
because I know that you have a powerful, this is what really, I mean, when you talked about sustainability on Rich's show, I was blown away. It was so powerful, so simple, and so beautiful, and it said it all. But let's, let's just, I'm, I'm curious about this conversation about how we've, we've bastardized these words so that we maintain the fever without actually going deeper. Because it seems like the human mind has a big resistance to change. Yeah, um, Anthony DeMello actually put it very well uh, in his book, uh, Awareness. He said, we don't fear the unknown because we don't know what the unknown is. We don't fear the unknown. We fear the loss of the known. That's powerful. Okay. So the people who are really controlling and driving the current system fear the loss of the known much more than anyone else. Right? So, so they are currently trying to keep the caterpillar going. So this is, they are like the Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff tried to keep the Ponzi scheme going, right? As much as he could, he did. He kept paying out to people who were, you know, who were asking him for his returns. But, and he kept the Ponzi scheme going as far as he could, right? Eventually, he had to collapse. It had to collapse, right? So that's what's going on here. I mean, and this is a known Ponzi scheme. We all know it's a Ponzi scheme. It's not like they have to hide it. It's a Ponzi scheme that they are trying to keep going. And that's what Obama is trying to do. That's what all the billionaires are trying to do. And at the other side are all the women of the world, the consumers, who can choose not to buy into the scheme. So the power really rests with the consumers, you see, to change the system. Because if they change it, I mean, for instance, did corporations decide to make almond milk and that's how we all got to know about almond milk? No. People are making almond milk. People are making coconut milk. People are making all these milks because they wanted a substitute for milk. And... As more and more people wanted, were making those, the milk on their own, the corporation said, wait a minute, we can make money off of that too. And they switched, right? So it was a consumer-driven transformation that happened. That's why we have all these milks. When I became vegan in 2008, we didn't have all these milks in the, in the supermarket. You know? So you, you could barely get soy milk in one or two supermarkets. And you would go there and you would patronize them. And pretty soon... All the other supermarkets started carrying soy milk. And then they started carrying other milks, right? So it was a consumer-driven transformation. It wasn't producer-driven. Okay? So it's not like Apple deciding, oh, we're going to do iWatch next, right? Nobody tells them they need an iWatch. So it was the other way around. This was a consumer-driven transformation that happens. And so the power now is with the women of the world to create a consumer-driven transformation. They are the ones who are going to initiate the butterfly, right? And if we all decide tomorrow to go vegan, there's nothing that the corporations can do about it. They have to give us what we ask for. So they are stuck, right? They are like the textile mills of Manchester of the early 20th century. Either they are going to to give us the food we want, what we are asking for, or they're going to go bankrupt. 
So that is the, the, the true power is with us. Mm-hmm. And that's really what Gandhi actually did to Indians. You know, he told us, you have the power. The British are here because you are letting them be here. That was the main message he, he gave the Indians, okay? He empowered Indians. And what we are trying to do at Climate Healers is, is to empower all the people of the world from the grassroots, saying, you have the power. You really have the power. We have the power to change. They are telling us a story saying, no, no, no. We have the power. <laughs> but that's not <laughs> They have the media, that's for sure. <laughs> but they really don't have the power. <laughs> and they are desperately trying to keep the the Ponzi scheme going. I mean, look at what they're doing, right? Look at their TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I mean, it is so blatantly anti-democratic. It's so blatantly anti-democratic because they have hit the wall. They have to do those things. They have to devolve and give all the power to the corporations in order to keep this thing going. So they have hit the wall. The caterpillar has reached its end. Mm. And, and chaos often precedes growth or change or transformation. Right. It does. Uh, it, looks, it looks chaotic, but at the same time, there's a lot of activity going on, right? <laughs> and that activity is geared towards a larger purpose, which is the transformation. So I, I, you know, I, um, I embrace the change that's going to happen. It, it really is quite exciting. You know, I've been, there are times when if I look out there at the world, I can easily feed into the despair if, if I look at that. But then I think about who I am, what I'm doing, the work that I'm doing in the world, the people that I connect with, like I said, like with, like with you. And I get so excited because I see, like I said, the roots of an entire, entirely new paradigm right. being birthed. And it really feels like there is an accelerated shift in consciousness that's happening at a micro grassroots level that is starting to t- overtake. And we're starting to see that with the <laughs> these really desperate attempts basically to maintain the caterpillar. Right. Because they're, they look more, abs- more and more absurd all the time. Right, right, yeah. That's the thing, right? I mean, when you see the absurdity of what they're trying to do, <laughs> they're, you know, the perpetual war, right? There's perpetual war, right? It's, it's a war on terror. <laughs> How do you ever stop a war on terror, right? <laughs> you, you are fighting an ideology now. <laughs> it's just, yeah, all the fear. Right. And, the, and people are no longer questioning that the, that the uh, defense budget keeps growing every year. It's because this is normal now. In, the, in this new system, in the system that they're building. It's normal that the defense budget keeps more than half of all the U.S. budget is going for defense, right? And, and, and the absurd trade packs that they're coming up with. And, uh, you know, and people see the absurdity of it. I mean, what is this? <laughs> you can, they can, the corporations can sue you for having, uh, for actually... Uh, trying to deploy solar panels. Mm. <laughs> I mean, things like this. That's a, yeah, it's paranoia. It, it's not paranoia. It is actually, that's, that's the state they're in now because you cannot continue the caterpillar without doing those things. Okay? So th- that tells you that the caterpillar is at its end, right? 
there are other indications. There are scientific indications showing that the caterpillar is at its end, that it's, it has to transform. Uh, we know, for instance, that if you make a change, if everybody goes vegan today, I'm not saying it's going to happen right away, but if we make a change, say, within the next few years, right, you'll release so much land back to nature, and the forests will come back, and the potential of the forest to sequester carbon is greater than the amount of carbon that we have added to the atmosphere since the industrial era began. So there is a potential for healing that is huge if we just release all that land back to nature. Okay? So that's on the one side. On the other side, we know that if we continue destroying nature at the rate at which we've been doing, because we've been doing it at an exponentially increasing rate, between 1970 and 2010, we destroyed 52% of all wildlife. And that's a survey of over 10,000 species that the wild, wild, World Wildlife Fund had done. Okay? So that's an exponential growth. I mean, the, the growth in that period, from 1970 to 2010, uh, human population doubled, and our per capita consumption also doubled. So our overall impact increased by a factor of four. And if you just say, okay, let's continue that, how many more years can we continue this without, uh, before killing all of wildlife? It turns out to be 15 years. Hmm. So by 2025, at the current rate of destruction, we will kill all wildlife, right? And that's, but that's a linear pred prediction. And we, all know, yeah, and we all know that life is nonlinear. But that's the thing, you see. There is, so there is a prediction that you can make by taking something that has happened and extrapolating. Exactly. Extrapolating into the future. Okay? And there is, there is also a prediction you can make saying if, if a nonlinear event happens, how much can we change? Right? That's the other side I told you. Just if we all became vegan today, we can actually transform the whole system completely to the point where the earth heals, the climate heals. So, those, so it's a stark contrast that we are now facing. It's a fork in the road we are facing. And we know that the side that says continue doing what you're doing is now coming up with all kinds of absurd plans to make it happen. That's a good sign. It's a good sign, right? It's a great <laughs> sign that they're, they're, they're pushed so far into absurdity that they are trying to pass things that it's impossible to pass. It's impossible to pass something like TPP. Why? Because the people are so opposed to this. People are going to be opposed to this because they see it. They see how absurd it is. So everybody is going to run away from it sooner or later. Every congressman is going to run away from it sooner or later. You know, Hillary Clinton is now, he said she's not going to support it, right? Bernie Sanders has said, of course he's not going to support it. And he even wrote an article saying it's worse than I thought. <laughs> So, <laughs> so everybody's not running away from it. So I see that as the fork, and we have chosen the right side of the fork. Right? We are, we are, we are all choosing now to go this way. We are choosing to go uh, against continuing the current system. And it's interesting, here in Canada, we just had a federal election, and our previous prime minister basically set us back as a country at least 10 to 20 years uh, as far as the climate is concerned. And uh, 
women's rights, human rights, he really set us back. And this, this recent election, we brought in somebody with a, a bigger vision for more of a, a, a healed country. Now, I'm not saying that we need to... <laughs> I mean, politicians, really, they're still in an antiquated system. So they're still within that system. But the fact that there's such significant change happening, like you said, with Hillary Clinton and here now with with uh, Trudeau as our as our prime minister, he's already like just in, I don't know, a month of being in office. He has already flipped the switch and brought us back into the 21st century. And it's incredible. So, you know, and even if you think about like uh, all of these, the Pope, for instance, the Catholic Church, I mean, the Catholic Church has been one of the primary instigators of really antiquated, misogynistic, climatically destructive thought for forever it seems like but then you get this new pope in there and he is speaking out against things that the catholic church in the past never would have so there's the fact that all of these leaders out there are starting to speak in very very different ways is showing me exactly what you're saying about how we've reached that fork in the road and it seems like even those who are still big players in the system are starting to see that we need to look down another path. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it is the, the change has become so loud now that that is impossible for the leaders to ignore it. Okay. That things are transforming so fast that the leaders are going to have to say, okay, I better follow them. <laughs> they follow us, right? Really. Our leaders are followers, literally, because the people really have the power. People change. When people change, leaders have to change. There's no question that they have to change. But they will, you know, they will fight and, and, and scream about it, but they'll change. Eventually, they'll figure out a way that they, that they will then tell the story where they've, they've been doing it all along. <laughs> <laughs> and they can have that story. That's great. <laughs> yes, they're welcome to have that story. <laughs> now, I'm curious, can we, can we talk a little bit about um, tipping points? Is it, mm. uh, I feel like we're kind of, we're, we're heading in that direction with our conversation, but it also seems like we're heading in that direction collectively, like the, the tipping point, some kind of a tipping point, the hundredth monkey effect, whatever you want to call it. And I'm curious to know what you feel needs to happen to expedite this or what your thoughts are on the tipping point in the first place. Right. So all changes that, uh, I mean, if we look at our history, if we understand our history, we see that, Everything that happened happened because of nonlinear events. You know, so there have been more nonlinear events than linear events. You know, I mean, because it's the nonlinear events that actually make a transformation in the way we think about things. Yeah, I use my granddaughter as an example. You know, my granddaughter, um, she's half Asian because my wife and I are both Asians. We migrated from India. And uh, she's one quarter African-American and she's one quarter uh, American Indian, Native American. So she's a mix of three different continents in one human being, right? But her ancestors, I mean, if you trace back, you know, 50,000 years ago or 60,000 years ago, we all came from Africa. We all came from the same place. 
We just happened to go and settle in different areas. And now we have all come back together in her. Okay? I, that's why I see her as a representation of humanity returning to roots. Returning to our original family. Okay? And I use her as a symbol in the sense that 100 years ago, she would have been colonized in India. She was colonized in India. Her, you know, people like her were basically hung from lampposts as an example by the British rulers. Yeah? So, I mean, we were treated as, you know, like less than dirt, right? 200 years ago, she would have been a slave on a ship. She would have been, you know, brought to America to work with cotton plantations or something. She would have been a slave on a ship. As an American Indian, she's still being oppressed. I see her, I see her uh, family, you know, having the highest rate of diabetes in the Western world. I mean, her 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 community is just south of Phoenix here, you know, and and they are in such dire straits in the modern era today. Their life expectancy is just above 50. And it's so tragic because it's based on food. They're not getting the right food. They're not getting the food that they grew up on. You know, when they were 100 years ago, they were not eating the kind of food they're eating today. In fact, their cousins in Mexico, they don't have any diabetes. They're actually perfectly fine. Okay? They're in northern Mexico and they're growing their own food. They're fine. But the people here, their water got taken away from them and they were they are now depending on federal food. Food sent in boxes by the federal government. Okay. And filled with processed foods. So they have become like the you know the perfect consumers for corporations, right? Because they eat whatever the corporations send them. And they are and if you go talk to them, they tell you, you know, if we continue with the current system for another 20 years, you'll be just like us. They tell us that, okay? So they're an example of where we're headed if we continue along the current path. And we don't want to go there, okay? So here is this girl who is a combination of all of this. And you look at her and, and anybody who looks at her says, I want to hug that girl. Because she has that presence in her. You know, she has that presence in her, that spirit in her. She would go hug anybody. And vice versa, people want to hug her. Okay? And I say, that is a major transformation that has happened in human society in just 200 years. In just 200 years, okay? You cannot imagine going back to that. Going back to the way we were. You cannot imagine that. And here I am, you know, I'm, I was born in India and I'm here in the US. And I'm working on healing the climate, and I'm, I, all, my, all the people who I work with are from all over the world. It's a completely international effort that's going on here, right? And you say, that kind of transformation that we are seeing, that nonlinear transformation that, we have, that we've already seen just in the last 200 years is now accelerating. That's what I'm feeling. Right. Really accelerating really accelerating, right? 
to the point where we are going to imagine and implement a whole new system and it is already happening and there is nothing that the current system can do about it. They, so, so that's why I see that the most important thing that we have to do is to show what this new way of living mm. can To be the leaders of a new paradigm. Show what does, it, what does it look like so that people become familiar with it because people never fear the unknown. You know? So they, they, when you show them what it is, that becomes the known. You know, when, when it becomes the known, then they say, I don't fear that at all. In fact, I'd rather live like that. Okay? And, and then the transformation will be accelerate. It will accelerate once you have an example like that. And that's what I'm working on now. In fact... Uh, uh, I was in 2011 in Durban, South Africa for the climate change conference, COP17. And that also happened because of my granddaughter. <laughs> she, she was born in 2010. And my wife donated some money to the hospital that she was born in, the Children's Hospital in Phoenix. And the hospital, you know, has an annual lottery where they, they select a prize for all the donors, you know, for one of the donors. And my wife happened to win the first prize, which was a trip for two to South Africa. I know, all expense paid trip for two to South Africa to a safari, okay? And, and I knew that the climate change conference was happening in South Africa, and I said, so maybe it's, it's a sign saying, go to the climate change conference. So I said, okay, let's go. You know, I mean, so we went. And before the conference, there was a meeting of all the faith leaders of the world. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu was chairing that. So there were all these faith leaders from all over the world who had come. And they were Muslims, they were Hindus, they were Buddhists, they were Christians of all sects. And uh, there were even atheists secular humanists. And we all got together and said, you know, we need to do something about this because this is really about us. This is about human behavior. It's really not about, you know, changing uh, policies. So we actually passed a resolution there. We, um, we made a declaration on climate change. We handed it over to Christiana Figueres, who is the executive secretary of the UN uh, FCCC, the climate change secretary. And so we had a ceremony at the UN, you know, for all that. And everybody signed this declaration. And the declaration actually had a statement at the end. It was an addendum that we put in saying, while climate change is a symptom, the fever that our earth has contracted, the underlying disease is the disconnection from creation that plagues human societies throughout the earth. And we, the undersigned, pledge to heal this disconnection by promoting and exemplifying compassion for all creation in all our actions. And everybody signed it. Oh, that's beautiful. Everybody signed it saying it is fundamental to our religion. This is why I see, you know, sustainability is really about coming back to your religion, to the original meaning of the religion. Because that's why religions have persisted for so long, because they are sustainable. They are talking about sustainability. You know, uh, compassion is sustainable. 
Compassion for all creation is infinitely sustainable. But violence against any part of creation is unsustainable. You will either kill that part of creation or we will kill ourselves in the process of trying to kill that part of creation. Okay? So any form of violence, any form of coercion is unsustainable. So that's why I say animal agriculture is so unsustainable. Because there is so much coercion involved. You have to make the animals stand in one place. Otherwise they waste all this energy. right? They waste all this food. And then you have to kill them when they are still babies. All that violence is unsustainable. It's going to stop. Because people are beginning to see it. They see it. And they are saying stop it. Okay? So fundamentally we knew, we know that you know, what, what religion calls morality is really about sustainability. Peace is sustainable. War is not. Yeah? Love is sustainable. Hate is not. So you can go down the list and you see that everything that we consider to be moral is really sustainable. Because to me, sustainability means that you can continue that action for the rest of creation, for all eternity, if you want to. That is sustainable, right? If it's going to stop at some point, then it's not sustainable. It is going to stop. So, uh, all the violence that we have put into our systems are going to have to change. We are going to go more into doing agroecology, you know, things that are in harmony with nature that actually create food for us. What did you call that? Agroecology? Yeah, agroecology, which is agroforestry, things like that, you know, which are the, actually the, the Native Americans had been doing that for centuries when we came along. I haven't heard that term before. I'm curious to explore that a little more. Right. Uh, it, it, you know, all the indigenous cultures had done things like this. Basically, you know, putting seeds in the ground so that more and more food grows around you. Right? Just like all the animals do that. They put seeds in the ground so that more, more mangoes grow near the monkeys or more jackfruits grow near the elephants. They're just dropping seeds all over, right? Just like that, we can drop seeds that we, for the food, food that we need. And the forest grows around us. And then we don't have to go and go till the land and things like that. <laughs> Everyone, <laughs> Food is all around you. It's less work. Less work, yes. Yeah. Then you'll have more leisure and you can do more things with that leisure. Right? <laughs> so people are working on agroforestry and agroecology, which is basically about growing things without having to ever go back and do it again. You know? Whereas if you have to do monocultures, if you have to grow you know, vast amounts of food of the same kind, then you will start doing you know, industrial farming and you will start growing GMO crops and all that comes when we try to do things that are antithetical to nature. If nature hates monocrops. She'll come and try to kill it. <laughs> and she'll say, no, no, let's do a forest here, right? Because nature loves biodiversity. Diversity is what is sustainable in nature. Monocultures are not. Right? So it's a real return to not only nature, but the simplicity, the simplicity of nature. It's a, it's a much simpler way of living. Right, yeah. And it, it's harmonious. Right. But that requires us to also reduce our footprint so that we become, essentially become simple, right? <laughs> And, and I think it is perfect the way it has happened because 
we couldn't have done this in the 60s because we didn't really, we really didn't have the technology to measure in a, in any system a, a system that is going um, seemingly going awry like our system is it's just a question of feedback if you had proper feedback that system will become stable okay so we know that actually we in system theory we know this in any system that is going oscillating it's oscillating or that's going exponentially incre increasing at some point you know that there isn't enough feedback that if you give the proper feedback to that system you'll step you can stabilize it yeah but to to give the proper feedback to a system you have to be able to observe the output of the system and we didn't have the tools to observe it in the 60s we do today we have all the satellite technologies that we know exactly what's happening to the forest we have the sensors in the ocean we know exactly what's happening in the ocean we have all the observability now available to us online through the internet and and it's all open source open source meaning it's done by the government they have actually gone and implemented all this so that we can actually now observe what's happening to the ocean we can observe what's happening to the forest okay so we have not put in the sensors for observability now we have to put in the systems for controlling it okay so we need to know now you know exactly what our footprint is so when we see our footprint and we say oh wow you know i'm living much bigger than i'm supposed to i do change right once you tell me uh, my footprint is double what you're entitled to because there are 7.4 billion human beings on the planet then i change you know i say i don't need i mean i only live in a small place you know even the house that i have i only use a little bit of it <laughs> why do i need the rest of it i don't so we change so we reduce our footprint you know so these things happen automatically you notice that there is a big movement now on tiny homes yes yes and that's really exciting right i mean there are and there are you know the younger generation is moving in droves into tiny homes they want to live like that it's not that the tiny homes are back to a cave right it's not that they're throwing away everything they still have their cell phones and they still have their electronics but they're consciously reducing it's it's conscious simplicity right why is that happening because they now have some feedback telling them that their footprint is much larger than what the planet can support so when we put in systems in our systems where we put in this feedback features so that we get to know our footprint we get to know what we are doing at a much closer and intimate level then we automatically change so it's about creating those you know the necessary infrastructure the software that needs to happen that's going to trigger the transformation you're so i feel so uplifted talking to you i feel so hopeful and so excited about this future that we're all moving towards i mean just the you know the the talk about speaking about veganism and the the exponential growth in veganism and how people are waking up to that that excites me our conversation a little bit about simplicity and what you called it conscious simplicity i love that i mean that's um 
that's something I keep moving in my own life. I keep moving simpler and simpler. And I realize the more I pare down my life, the richer it becomes, the more fulfilled I feel, the more connected I feel. And I realize how little I actually need. And, you know, and I've, I've come to this, this point where I ask myself before every purchase, is this a want or is this a need? And I realize how little I actually need, you know, and it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Just that simple little question, how it empowers me to live simpler and more consciously more connectedly and it's it's easy it's easy easy it actually frees you and it's freeing it's exactly it's liberating it's liberating because anytime we possess something when we go buy something we get tied to it we become enslaved to it Mm -hmm. so that's what russo actually said you know he who is a master of others is more a slave than they he wrote that in the social contract so people who are trying to enslave other, doesn't matter whether it's other people or other animals or other things, they are more a slave than the things that they're trying to enslave, that they're trying to possess. So it, it is, so freeing ourselves is really about giving up these things, you know, and saying, and seeing through them, seeing through them. It's not about renouncing them. It's about seeing through it. So you look at this phone and you say, it's a tool. I don't care if I lose it. I get another one, you know? It's a tool. So it doesn't bother me anymore. I mean, and as long as it works, I'll keep using it as a tool. You know? And it's basically helping me to connect with, with you. You know, This computer is helping me connect with you. So uh, when you lose that possessiveness, you become freer. That is actually... Um, Someone I met at Burning Man this year called Bia Johnson. And Bia Johnson wrote a book called Zero Waste Home. And she's living it, you know. So she shows this mason jar, uh, which is all her trash from the last three years. And, and she's, she's saying, you know, she now has a, uh, has a wardrobe, which she can just pack in her suitcase and go wherever she wants with it. So she simplified her life and her family's life and everybody in her family is much, much happier than they used to be. Just three years, right? She did this. So she saw it and she's saying, I'm a hundred times happier than I used to be. (laughs) There's like no comparison, right? The same is happening to me too, right? I mean, I I see this, you know, I I mean, I, I experience it. And until people really experience it, they don't, understand exactly and right that's it so that's so that's what i'm actually working on now is i actually um did a uh, presentation to the city council of sedona sedona is a town in arizona uh it's one of the most spiritual places i've been to it's a beautiful place where you really get connected with nature and you see the perfection of nature and people who have moved to sedona move for that reason because they felt it so the city council of Sedona, I asked, you know, if they could let us build an example community where we show what the new butterfly paradigm looks like so that people who visit Sedona can come and experience it for a day or for a week. or whatever. They can come and live there for a week, experience it. 
And then once they experience it, then they won't be afraid of it, right? And we also want to put that up on the internet, you know, have a, a real-time thing that shows exactly what we are doing, how we are bringing back the forests. You know, we are going to do agroforestry there. We are going to uh, try and implement a zero-waste community there. So, and it's going to be completely renewable energy-based. It will be off-grid. So all these ideas we have, we are going to implement it and show people what it is like to live like that. Okay? So that people then say, we voluntarily want to live like that because it makes me happier. You know? Because that's really all we are about, the pursuit of happiness, right? That's... Exactly. And uh, why should people be so miserable? Right? And we have been miserable. I mean, you know, the aspiration of becoming like an American is, is spread throughout the world because the uh, corporations have done a great job of, of selling it, the American way of life, because that's where the consumption increases. When the consumption increases, there's more goods to sell. So for the corporations, it's about selling more goods, right? So they're pushing that throughout the world. And at the same time, we know that 49% of Americans are either on antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication or on illegal drugs on a daily basis. There is so much misery, there's so much suffering in America. Okay? There's so much suffering. And the richer people are, the more suffering that they're experiencing. And they're stuck. They think they cannot think of any other way. They are scared of giving up what they already know, so to speak, right? So you, you got to tell, you know, um, and someone in India, don't aspire to be an American. They laugh at you. But it's really about helping the Americans, helping the rich countries change who they are. So that the aspirations of the poorer countries and the developing countries changes with that. So maybe the Dalai Lama really was onto something when he said the the, the Western woman is the is the change that the world needs, or exactly. is the facilitator at least of the yeah. change. Absolutely. That's that's so interesting how it's kind of come full circle with with what we've talked about. Right, and that's why I'm so hopeful. You see, because it's in the hands of women. It, it's in the hands of women. It's in the hand. It's in very good hands. It's going to happen. It's going I to think happen. so. <laughs> this has been amazing, Silesh. And I just have, I've got one more question that was, uh, uh, I mentioned that I was going to be reaching out to you, to one of my listeners in Australia. And I asked him, I said, if you have any questions, let me know. Uh -huh. And so he wants me to ask you, from your perspective, can you offer some ideas for people living in urban areas on how to best facilitate the healing of the climate in their own personal lives? Now, he's already vegan, and uh, he already asks that if you have any ideas for projects that people who may be time poor, he's got his own business, but want to contribute in some way, volunteer, financial, or otherwise, what would you say? What would you offer? I would say, you know, help build it's a community around you hmm. that exemplifies this, okay? I mean, 
uh, you can actually ask the kids around you, you know, would you like, if I buy you a small piece of land, would you like to live and show, you know, live like this and show what it's like? So those are the, the, all these little examples that we create around the world. It's, it's going to show the rest of the world, hey, transformation is happening and that's the way it's going to be. Future. People are going to look at that and say, that's where you need to be. Whereas if we have a huge home, like uh, Mukesh Ambani, you know, I use him as an example because he happens to be an Indian, happens to be a Hindu, and is doing the exact opposite of what Hinduism is telling you <laughs> to do. <laughs> so he built this 40-story home for himself, or 27-story home for himself in the <laughs> middle of Mumbai. He spent, I think, a billion dollars on that home. And from the, from the top of that home, he can see the slums of Mumbai. Right? And, and you say, my God, does anybody aspire to live in a house like that? Who aspires to live in a house like that? Or, or I look at that home and I say, I'm sorry for him. I feel sorry for him. Because he thinks that that's going to make people think highly of him. But it doesn't, you know. People are laughing at him. He doesn't see that. People are laughing at him. But he moves in a circle where people are admiring him, right? So he thinks that that's what is going on. Whereas lots of people are laughing at him. It's a mausoleum, right? That you built for yourself. <laughs> and he, he even says he never sets foot on the ground. Because he gets in a helicopter from the roof of his home and he goes to another helipad on the roof of his office building. That's his life. That is very sad. That is, it is very sad, right? Yeah. I mean, his son was caught driving under the influence in a, in a very expensive car. He went and crashed into somebody. Okay. And so how can you be happy when your son is doing that? Mm. You cannot be happy, right? So what did he buy from all that? He's showing us what waste looks like. So... When we get to a point where we look at that and we say, I feel sorry for him, everybody feels sorry for him, then we will have changed. Mm. And it shows, that story shows that true abundance, and just our whole conversation, it, it, it really hammers home to me how true abundance is comes from our interior landscape. It has nothing to do with what's are you know our external possessions our external beliefs but it's all in, in our internal landscape our connection you mentioned community community like-minded community supportive community that nurtures and helps us grow and be more of who we're meant to be i mean to me that's pure abundance right that is abundance you know that is the abundance we are all seeking mm -hmm. It's the community of other human beings. It's the community of life around us. You know, uh, when we see nature flourish, we feel happy. Every human being will feel happy when they see nature flourish around them. Okay? That is the abundance we are working towards. And that is the abundance that, uh, you know, that we should all be seeking. And, and, and that's what we do. That's my life now. What a beautiful life. 
Yes, I'm so blessed. I'm absolutely, you know, I I feel tremendously hopeful and I'm, I feel so in touch with all of life. And I'm so blessed to be in that position. I can hear it. I can hear it. I can feel it. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that I reached out to you and that we've connected and that I have a platform that I can bring your beautiful voice into the world in an even bigger way. So Silesh, thank you so much for, for taking so much time to, to just share your essence and your vision and your hope and your faith with, with me and with my listeners around the world. Thank you. I am so grateful. You're welcome. I'm grateful for being here with you too, you know. Thank you so much for doing this, for spreading the word. Well, I'm hoping that your heart is feeling as big and fat and full as mine is after this really, really inspiring conversation with Silesh. And my personal thought is that a big, fat, and full heart is already a butterfly and well on its way to inspiring greater transformation for the emerging new butterfly world. I just love envisioning that. It just, yeah, it just seems so much more beautiful than a bunch of voracious caterpillars, don't you think? Although, you know, caterpillars are great too. Caterpillars are but not in the metaphoric sense. I like those fuzzy caterpillars that curl up when you hold them. Yeah. Anyway, you can find a direct link to Silesh's website as well as many of the books and other things that we spoke about in today's show in the show notes at debozarco.com backslash 89. And speaking of books, there's also going to be direct links to pre-order Unplug the Book on Amazon, iBooks, and Kobo. And remember to share this podcast with your family, your friends, your, your co-workers, and everyone you can, you can imagine. Spread the word for a kinder, more compassionate, and authentic world that includes all living beings. Yeah. That's the kind of world I know that I want to live in. And that's it. The end of another Unplugged podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. Thank you for listening. And remember, live with passion, live with purpose, change the world.